This is a very special edition of the Geopolitics and Empire podcast. Uh, we have our guest here. Uh, we're speaking with Joanna Lilis, who is the author of the recently published Dark Shadows Inside the Secret World of Kazakhstan. She's been living in the Soviet and former Soviet space for almost 30 years now, half of that time in, in Kazakhstan. She writes for The Economist, The Guardian, The Independent, Eurasianet, Foreign Policy, Politico, and many, many other publications. And it's special because um, I think you're based in Almaty, mm -hmm. yeah? Yeah. And so I'm here in remote, uh, kind of rural Kazakhstan in Samay. And I had been meaning to, to visit her uh, in Almaty, but I was checking my Twitter feed and I saw her posting uh, photos from Samay. And so just the way uh, things come together. And uh, so, you know, this is special. So thanks for coming on the program. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And I don't have the physical book, but I bought... Uh, on Kindle, so you can see Dark Shadows on, on Kindle. And it's one of the first uh, books of its kind, I think, in English discussing Kazakhstan. Yeah. And so my first question is, you know, the goal of this talk is really to kind of dig into your experience and your life here, get some of your insights and share with li listeners what Kazakhstan is all about uh, before Nazarbayev, during, uh, and now post Nazarbayev. Yeah. So it's really a historic moment to be here. Like two weeks ago, uh, it was... Couldn't believe to, to, hear, to hear the news. You know, after 30 years, he's formally stepping down. Uh, and you've spoken to people from all walks of life in Kazakhstan, uh, I think, including those in power. Yes, some? Yeah, some. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we want to get the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> uh, and, you know, one thing I've learned living now in six countries is that in every single country, you have advantages that others don't in their political structure, economic system, social and cu cultural traditions, uh, as well as you have bad things. So, I mean, I think your book was very objective. It looked at positive and negative sides. Um, and, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on the older history of Kazakhstan, because people can read about that, and especially get your book. Uh, you have the first part of the book deals with that and, and throughout the book. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing that hit me as an American living here is that I never realized how much of a deep presence and influence the Russian Empire and Soviet Union had, you know, always from the West, we've heard, you had kind of had this vague idea of Soviet Union and Russia, but living here, you know, I never realized it's been hundreds of years, the, the, the language that was imposed and, and before the Soviet Union, the, the Russian Empire, and you can still feel uh, very visibly this, this, this influence. Um, and then, you know, you have the issues with the language, the, the mass government migrations of the ethnic populations, uh, the, the gulags, the, the killings, um, and even though, and still some people are nostalgic for the Soviet Union. So maybe to start, um, you can tell us some of the more relevant points for you to set the context uh, and get across uh, regarding the Kazakh history from, from the days of the Russian Empire until the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, you know, what might you tell us that's most important to set the context? Right, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think this this question of the Russian influence on Kazakhstan, it's really it's really, you know, absolutely massive this this influence. I don't think anybody would would really deny that. I mean, we hear a lot these days about Chinese influence, but the influence of Russia political, economic, cultural, linguistic, uh, it's really, you know, stamped on Kazakhstan. Um, and of course, it, here in Sumay, you know, we really feel it, walking around the streets and, um, and, and looking at the buildings, you know, you can really see this Russian colonial influence, Soviet and Russian as well. Um, so I think, you know, um, it's not something you can at all underestimate. Um, I think, um, 
you know, it's, it's something that's um, sensitive, I think, to some people, um, especially to, to many Kazakhs who, who'd like to kind of see a bit more reassessment of the Soviet past and, um, and, and the Russian colonial past. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, even these days in Russia, um, you know, there are many people who don't actually see Russia as a colonizer, who, who, who believe that Russia came to, to, to help the, the, the other Soviet, post-Soviet countries, what are now post-Soviet countries. Um, but um, we also see the sensitivities that Russia has um, towards um, towards any attempt to 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 revisit the history that was handed down by um, the Soviets, basically uh, at this point. Um, for example, only last week. Um, the new president, Kasim Jamat Takayev, was in Moscow and they wrote into their joint declaration that there should be no attempts to falsify and to, to rewrite history was what they actually wrote. So you can see that this is top of Moscow's agenda, if you like. Um, and I think the difficulties that that can bring um, uh, are that uh, it means that it's very difficult to have a, an objective conversation about the the past, a realistic conversation about the past. I mean, I, I've been visiting the museums in Sumay, um the last couple of days, and you know there are so many glaring omissions. Really, you know, some small in the in the um, the the main museum. There's there's just a, you know a little bit about Semi Palatis, the the test site, but there's nothing about when it opened, why it opened, how many nuclear uh, how many nuclear explosions uh, took place there, and what was was the impact on people's health, which we know was absolutely massive. Um, so I think you know this question. Question of Russia, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really, really big influence on, mm -hmm. on Kazakhstan. Um, and maybe you can tell us about the, you know, another topic that's still relevant to this day, and and something that I was surprised coming here, the different ethnic groups uh, living here. There's so many: the Kazakhs, the Russians, Germans, the Tatars, and uh, maybe if you just want to comment on the ethnic uh, dynamics, what's most important for you to highlight here? You know, I find it fascinating that. A third of Kazakhs don't speak the language at all or, or very well. Mm -hmm. um, the ethnic dynamics is something that I find hugely interesting and I tried to bring it out in, um, in Dark Shadows uh, because I think that, you know, the, 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 impact on on the psyche if you like of the kazakhs um, because of the the massive transformations eth um, ethnographic demographic transformations that took place over the course of really just a few decades um from the late um uh, 19th century um to the to the you know for the uh, through the stalin period especially i mean there was these huge impacts that um you know if you look at the figures um you know in the late but just before the turn of the century um kazakhs were around 90 percent of the population and then by um you know in the 30s because of all the all the all the things that happened under the, in the stalin period in the 30s and 40s um from a famine that you know we don't know how many people it killed but we know it was probably at least a million or possibly up to two million um, and most of those people were Kazakhs um, who, who were killed in the famine and also the um, deportations that were were undertaken um, whole peoples transported from other parts of the Soviet Union so a sort of punitive measure if you like under Stalin um, before during and after World War Two, and all of that you know ended up driving Kazakhs into a minority in, in Kazakhstan and I think that re that really reverberates um, in, in people's mentality to this day I mean to, and and, and 
and going back to what we were kind of saying about history, I think that um, there are people who are resentful that an open discussion of this is not held um, in Kazakhstan. Um, you know, some post-Soviet countries are having that discussion, some are not. Um, in Kazakhstan, it's very sensitive. Kazakhstan, um, well, uh, Nursultan Naz Nazarbayev, when he was president, would constantly say Russia was Kazakhstan's number one foreign policy partner, number one priority. Uh, basically, um, you could say Kazakhstan's Russia's closest ally. So how can they reassess this history? Um, but really, it does have an enormous impact on the way people feel. And there are resentments about about this to this day, um, including, you know, the, the, the fact, um, as you mentioned, that many people in Kazakhstan don't speak Kazakh. Um, and this is, you know, this is not so much the case in, in some other post-Soviet countries that, that the local language was so eroded. I mean, there are many reasons for that. One being the, the, the massive influx of, of um, people from elsewhere that made Russian Alinkov Franca. Mm -hmm. um, and people still resent that now, understandably as well. And I think what we could also say is there's a big failing in the education system because, I, you know, I, I constantly meet young people who leave school without a proper grasp of Kazakh. Mm -hmm. That's slowly changing. So, <laughs> um, and you mentioned the nuclear tests, and so I wanted to talk about that uh, as well. We're here in Semei, which is 120 kilometers from the Polygon, the nuclear test site, where was the principal Soviet uh, nuclear test site, um, which, by the way, I'm going to visit soon for the oh. first time. I'm going to go visit the actual test site. Um, and something maybe people don't know that you can actually go visit in Nevada as well, the, the U.S. government. Um, every month they allow about 20 to 30 people to go visit the test site in America. Okay. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm wanting to do that someday as well. Just, just, to, I'm interested in, in the history, but in your book, you know, you talk, you, I think your last chapter talks about this. Um, and it, you, you talk about the, some of the wider effects to this day, you know, are still unknown. There's still research that needs to be done and we, we still don't know, but, uh, you know, definitely a lot of people suffered. I think Nazarbayev said that from half a million to one and a half million people uh, suffered and, and, you know, the genes were mutated, so they're passed down the line. So someone who was affected at the time, uh, you know, maybe they weren't affected, but then their children, child has problems, or maybe their child doesn't have problems, but their grandchild. So it goes down the line. Uh, so maybe if you could just t tell us uh, briefly, you know, what sticks out for you regarding the test site. And you mentioned that, is this true that scientists say that most of the, a lot of the land will be salvageable by next year, 2020? This was sad. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there, obviously, there, 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 there was this uh, um, enormous impact on, on human health um, and on people's lives. People's lives were destroyed, I mean, because of, the, of, of, of that. I mean, children born disabled uh, in dark shadows. I interviewed the mother of a, a second generation of a uh, victim of, nu of nuclear testing. In other words, um, the, the young woman was born um, after the testing had stopped, but um, she, she is still identified as being severely disabled, um, both physically and mentally, because of the impact of that testing. Um, that's happened and it, it ceased before she was even born so it, it's um, you know it's really terrifying actually um, how how um, little regard I guess the, the Soviets had for the health of the people around them um, there are uh, conflicting views of course on whether um, the Soviets deliberately used people as, as sort of guinea pigs to see what the effect would be I mean I I think most people probably most reliable scientists have have their doubts that this was really the case. It was more a sort of 
perhaps it, I I don't know, but it was perhaps more a disregard that the you know the Soviet state was very much about um, you know always. Um, putting the state first, the collective, uh, over the individual. Um, and, and yet, you know, what we see now is, um, you know, this destruction of people's lives. I mean, the, the, the person that I'm talking about who I interviewed in the book, um, she ended up, has, has now spent her whole life, or, or, or nearly the past 30 years, um, looking after her disabled daughter. Um, we hear a lot uh, from... Um, no Sultan Nazarbayev, who recently resigned as president, about um, Kazakhstan giving up nuclear weapons voluntarily at the fall of the Soviet Union. Very laudable, of course. Also, um, under Nazarbayev, you know, a moratorium was placed on nuclear testing in at Semipalatinsk, and then the site was closed down at Independence. Um, but we, hear, you know, we hear a lot about this. Um, it's something that Kazakhstan uses to show itself as a force for good on the international stage, um, and also to counteract criticism over negatives as well in, in its human rights record. Um, but you know, I, I was very struck when I came to do some research for the book and meet some of the victims um, and their parents who have to look after them um i was very struck um by actually how little assistance they do get you know what they get is basically a smallish disability allowance um kazakhstan did pay out some compensation the government in the 90s after independence and you have to say that is a good thing because um it wasn't Kazakhstan that caused the problem. It was Moscow, but Moscow just walked away from the problem. Okay, but Kazakhstan did pay out quite small amounts of compensation. And of course, all of that is long since spent. Um, and now people are surviving on a, on a disability allowance of maybe a couple of hundred dollars um, a month. But but of course, somebody has to be a full-time carer for these, for these people. Um, and... Um, also striking, of course, yeah, we, we, it's very difficult to say what the long-term impact of the tests, um, how long it's going to last. I mean, we have seen these uh, um, quite astonishing forecasts that, as you mentioned, that, the, that a lot of the land would be salvageable and, uh, and perfectly harmless. By 2020, I think that forecast was probably made about a decade you know, ago. Um, I mean, I, I'm not a scientist, so I, but I do find that quite astonishing. I mean, is, is this really, can this really be the case? Of course, Kazakhstan has a very, a very, um, respected and well-developed nuclear, civilian nuclear industry. So I, I guess they do know what they're talking about. Let's hope so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I came, I brought a Geiger counter. Uh, I was kind of fearful, but it seems since in the city and so many things are all right. So mm-hmm. no, no problems here. Okay. So uh, we'll see when I get to the test site. We have, I have to, we have to purchase the, the protection when you get to the test site. And so, um, uh-huh. so l- let's talk about the president or former president now, uh, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. Um, and if you can perhaps help us understand a little bit of, of, of who he is, because, you know, there are many people here who truly support him and like him, but as well, you have people who, Though they may not like him, they support him mm-hmm. because he, you know, for the sake of stability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, you have people that don't like the president of Azerbaijan. And, you know, it's also interesting. I've met many people who are just disinterested uh, or indifferent regarding Nazarbayev and all the politics. And they just want to go about their lives. Uh, and so, you know, how would you, you know, g- give us this glimpse of who is uh, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev? Right. Well, that's a big question, I think, for Kazakhstan. I mean, this, you know, this is a, 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 a man. Um, I, I, I hope I 
I tried to show this in Dark Shadows, a towering personality who has just stamped his personality and his um, politics um, and policies on Kazakhstan, you know, in a, in a very, in a very, uh, uh, well, strong, <laughs> powerful way. Um, now, clearly, um, uh, clearly, he's 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 a very astute politician. Um, you know, we, I think um, his rise in politics in Soviet times um, probably shows us that. I mean, this is a, a person who started off as a steel worker, um, well, was born in rural Kazakhstan, um, and has has previously described himself as a as a son and grandson of, of shepherds. Although I believe that there were some people in his family who were a bit more powerful than that. Um, but um, this is a person who rose up through the the ranks in the Soviet. Union. Um, he has said after the fall of the Soviet Union that he basically became a communist because he was very ambitious and that was the way to get ahead. In fact, he said um, that he would have become a Buddhist if that had been what it t took. And I, I think that's probably, um, you know, we don't always believe what politicians say in public, but I think that's probably true. He was clearly a very ambitious person and he rose right through the ranks, um, you know, soon leaving manual work behind eventually. I mean, it was a tough job being a steel worker in the 50s in the Soviet Union. Um, but he became a party cadre, um, Communist Party, um, and um, and you know he was really um, rising pretty fast. Um, he was uh, on the Politburo, um, sitting in Moscow, as well as um, becoming, of course, the the Soviet leader of Kazakhstan, the first secretary in 1989, chosen by Mikhail Gorbachev, the last Soviet leader, when he wanted to bring a new broom. Um, so at that time, Nazarbayev, young, ambitious, and and um, and tipped for greater things even until the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, and then, of course, thrust into, you know, independence, um, independent Kazakhstan, which um, at the time was quite a, a, a <laughs> as well as being maybe, a, you know, a, a welcome and exciting opportunity. It was also a terrifying one because the economy was collapsing. Uh, people were protesting. You know, you had a big industrial workforce, you a, a huge Russian minority, Kazakhs in a, in a minority still um, in their own country or, you know, uh, uh, so um, all of this was a massive challenge and, and uh, obviously to some degree Nazarbayev rose to that challenge and uh, he's also made himself very popular as you mentioned among some people who do prize some of the things that um, that he has um, given the country if you like. I mean they're a bit of a mantra sometimes an official mantra things like ethnic harmony you know it's true that Kazakhstan does have over a hundred ethnic groups and they do rub along remarkably peacefully really considering you know what we see in other post-Soviet countries sometimes. Um, and of, of course stability is another mantra and people prize that. Now um, you know you could argue that stability is used um, as a way of making people fearful of change because wanting to keep that political system that Nazarbayev has built. Um, but there, so Nazarbayev has a lot of fans, a lot of acolytes in Kazakhstan. That's absolutely definite. I mean I talked to so many people over these years, um, 14 years now in uh, reporting from Kazakhstan, especially at election time. So I'm already getting out and talking to people because we now have another election, but of course, no Nazarbayev this time. Um, and the other thing, though, you know, that there's a lot of talk, um, you know, we, we, we do see he has his fans and he the, the, they prize some of the achievements um, that he's helped to bring about or brought about. Um, but also, he does certainly have a lot of detractors too. And um, what I have witnessed over the years is the, is the um, ramping up of the of suppression of dissent, the 
um, terrible consequences that it can have for people who who express alternative views in Kazakhstan. Um, you know that you know going to jail, um, um, all this kind of thing. The um, inability to tolerate any kind of public process, uh, protest. Sorry, um, you know basically just de facto making it illegal. Even one person going out can, uh, to protest or to make a political statement can be arrested, can be jailed. Um, and, uh, you know, only a couple of weeks ago, after um, Sultan Nazarbayev resigned, um, we saw um, some small protests in Almaty, Astana, and a few other cities. I was at the protest in Astana, uh, in, sorry, in, I was at the protest in Almaty. Um, and, you know, you, uh, you witness peace, peaceful people who aren't actually doing anything, just being dragged off by the police. It's not a pleasant sight. So we can't, you know, we can argue that Nazarbayev has held on, he held on to power and still, because he has considerable powers post-retirement, um, he, he, he consolidated his power through a mixture of, you know, uh, carrot and stick, if you like. Um, you know, he did deliver many things to, to, to many people, um, you know, including some rising prosperity really over most of the, the years, um, even if growth is slower now than it was in the oil boom. Um, but he's also kept on to power by ruthlessly suppressing dissent. There are now no legally functioning real opposition parties in Kazakhstan. There will be no opposition in this election um, that's coming up in June because, um, you know, I'm Nazarbayev has driven them all out of existence. So that is the, you know, the, the negative side of his legacy. But certainly a towering, absolutely towering figure who's going, you know, whose who's, who's rule of 30 years is going to be, you know, a, a, is going to go down in history for, for various reasons. Now, I wanted to talk about the elections, but perhaps a little bit later. And, uh, you know, just briefly, you mentioned the economic situation, and, and I would agree that there has been uh, a growth uh, and it is slowing down, and I think they tend to hype uh, a bit, like compared to the reality, uh, and compared to what it's, it's been hyped, uh, how well things have, have developed. So I mean, th there is a, a steady progress, but it seems the weakest point is the economy, and we've seen that lately. And historically, you know, if, if we look at like the French Revolution, you know, one of the reasons that that happened was, you know, when uh, forty percent of people's salary went. Um, just to buy food, it's not, and we're far from that here. But that's always the weakest point: is when when people's uh, economy is is threatened. That's when they start to get angry, and you know I think that that's led to some of the the recent uh, discontent. And I mean, how do you see the economic situation in general in Kazakhstan, uh, as well as compared to its neighbors in Central Asia? I mean, for me, it seems it's it's done better than most in the area, but maybe you have a different perspective. Yeah, I mean, um, the, yeah, the, the question of the economy, I mean, as you say, what, 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 what really, um, I mean, you, you mentioned yourself, sometimes people are very politically apathetic. Um, where, and I think that's because they are excluded from the political process, really. It's all top down decided from above. They don't feel they have a political voice, even if they go out and vote at, at elections. They're not given genuine choices anymore. Um, but what really does bother people is when, yeah, you know, when they, well, when they struggle to make a living or to feed their families, to feed their children, um, when they, their, you know, their, their livelihoods, um, are become, you know, it becomes difficult to, to, to find a decent livelihood. Um, and we have seen, um, a fair, amount of grumbling and griping 
um, and discontent over these issues in the in recent years. Really, um, you know, I mean, Kazakhstan experienced an oil boom throughout pretty much throughout the two thousands, but then things started to you know slow down. And I think, I mean, I personally. Um, um, I reported on the economic crisis that hit Kazakhstan when the global credit crunch happened in 2007, 8, 9. Um, and, but uh, more recently, you know, I think uh, 2014 was a real turning point for Kazakhstan um, when um, two things happened. Um, uh, um, the first was... Um, the knock-on effect of problems in the Russian economy, which came from, well, from its invasion of Ukraine, annexation of Crimea and resulting sanctions. And there was a massive knock-on effect because of Kazakhstan's close ties to Russia. Um, and you can certainly say that that wasn't really Kazakhstan's fault. I mean, well, it wasn't Kazakhstan's fault at all. I mean, uh, um, but the knock-on effect, you could also argue, was they're too tight to Russia, and that, that's a problem. Um, and of course, the very same year, just a few months later, um, the crash of the global oil prices. But again, um, not Kazakhstan's fault, but um, you can also argue, and many people do, um, that it, it, in, the, in the fat years, the government f just focused too much on oil. There's always talk in Kazakhstan about diversification of the oil-dependent economy, and yet all the time programs to do this to encourage it and yet you know it just hasn't happened so you know these are we, these this, that's a big economic failing um and we did we have seen um you know we saw protests around that time and, and we do now see um protests over socio-economic issues with the, the and i think people you know there are many people who do struggle to get by in kazakhstan and they find now the gap between the reality that they live and the rhetoric from the top to be very frustrating i mean um you know um for example nazarbayev has constantly said he's making life better for people and that is true to 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 a degree um but i think uh, you know just a few months ago, we saw these um, women who are mothers of large families uh, of many children who were really struggling to get by protesting. And um, in fact, this uh, this was so so um, striking that um, when Nazarbayev then fired the government, um, he, he he sort of mentioned these problems of of people being dissatisfied with with you know socioeconomic discontent and so on. And so we're really seeing that now. And and. Um, I think one of the problems is that there used to be a big, uh, there used to be a great feel-good factor, I think, in Kazakhstan, well, during the oil boom, which is understandable when there was more money sloshing around. Um, but these days, um, I don't know, the economy is growing more slowly, um, and, um, people's salaries have taken a real hit from devaluation of the currency. Um, and that, you know, in a dollarized economy like Kazakhstan, that means something to people. I mean, the middle classes used to, you know, it used to be much cheaper to go on holiday for a start. I mean, that that's okay. That's maybe a luxury. From, and that's certainly a luxury many people can't afford at all. And what also strikes me very much is um, the poor conditions in rural Kazakhstan, in villages. Um, you know, the, the fact that um, there are so many villages that don't have running water is an absolute disgrace for an oil rich country like Kazakhstan um, that has uh, has constantly talked about you know how, how well people are doing then then you know I think those kind of issues are that those are failings um, and as for where it's going well you know I think um, you know government forecasts and all forecasts of all international organizations uh, IMF ADB 
Um, they all show really that, you know, the growth's not, there's not going to be a big spurt in growth. It's going to be steady. Um, but um, I, I, I think that what we can expect, you know, people perhaps feel frustrated because they sense that it, there's not going to be major improvements. It's hard for people to find jobs, uh, especially ones that pay decent wages. Wages are pretty low compared to the cost of living in Kazakhstan for most people, many people. Um, and of course, then there's the added factor of corruption, um, of nepotism, of not being able to find a job if you don't have the right contacts. This People find it very frustrating, uh, understandably. Um, so I think it might be, a, it's going to be a tough few years in, in terms of this kind of public mood. Um, and the other thing, of course, that we're going to, that we can see um, is... Um, a political transition like the one that Kazakhstan is, is having to a degree now, um, we're, you know, there's going to be a new president um, or, or, you know, the, a president is going to be elected in June. Um, and But this does mean that people who maybe kept quiet under Nazarbayev, perhaps because they admire him or perhaps because they or, or because they were afraid, but for whatever reason, I think this does, it does kind of give, a, it, you know, there are going to be, more outbursts of um, disaffection. Of course, we don't know what form that will take. Public protest is not tolerated. Uh, but I do think it's going to be a difficult few years. Mm -hmm. And what about, you know, something you talk about uh, in your book, <laughs> you go into detail with some of the scandals, the Game of Thrones, uh, the Dark Shadows, as you call <laughs> it, um, or the Kazakh Deep State, um, which is a popularized term. You know, I used to use that term when I was teaching in Mexico seven years ago, uh, um, and people were just, you know, calling you kind of crazy for using that term, and now it's become uh, the norm. And, you know, in, in my view, I feel that most countries, to different degrees, have their own version uh, of the deep state. United States, uh, I'm a citizen also of Mexico, and people in Mexico know that there's there's some some kind of power there behind the, 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 the scenes, uh, and perhaps... You can tell us a little bit about this Kazakh deep state or whatever you want to call it. Um, and something you talked about that actually I, I didn't know about really um, before I read your book, Kazakh Gate. Mm -hmm. uh, and so tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. this. Well, um, the the deep state, um, I, I, I sort of referred to that um, when I was writing about Rakhat Aliyev, the... Um, Nazarbayev's former son-in-law, the former husband of his daughter Dariga Nazarbayeva, um, and I mean, really, I, 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 I only, um, everything that we were told um, about Rakhatiliev after his fall from grace suggests that he really was operating in some kind of parallel power structure, structures and very sinister ones at that. I mean, um, you know, trials were held um, without him of course, because he was abroad, so in absentia, um, in which all kinds of, 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 of very bizarre details were revealed. I mean, he was he was convicted of attempting to basically overthrow Nazarbayev, and um, there was all kinds of strange details revealed in these trials about how he'd been procuring poisonous isotopes, um, how he'd been training fighters, um, all this kind of stuff. Um, uh, when he was, um, he was at one time senior in the security service um, and had various other senior positions. And it all sounded like, a, you know, a sort of deep state, a sinister parallel power structure. Um, and so if we are to believe the official information that was provided by prosecutors, the government, by, the, by officials, by the courts, that's what was happening. Um, now, what um, is absolutely striking, though, to me, is that 
how was it possible that he could have been doing this for so many years? Um, you know, the opposition, which existed at the time, was constantly raising the alarm over, over Rakhataliev and what he was doing. All of it was ignored until the, the time when he fell foul of Nazarbayev. And then, OK, then it was all kind of, it's to some degree dealt with. I mean, well, dealt with. Um, some trials were held and things were made public. Um, but you have to say that that was a, a, an astonishing piece of negligence on the part of, of, of the authorities if, if this was all going on for so many years as we were told it was um you know from 1991 say to independence until 2007 when Mahatalia fell foul of Nazarbayev so deep state I mean as for as for nowadays I mean I think we we suffer from a lack of transparency about what the security services does and so on I mean that's the nature of the secret services but um you know I think I think the deep state stuff was really very much connected to Rahat Aliyev. Um, on Kazakh Gate, you mentioned Kazakh Gate. Um, yeah, that was a um, um, obviously an, a corruption scandal that um, broke in um, around 2001, I guess, or 2000 perhaps, um, and, and involved um, basically um, oil contracts for kickbacks. Um, and uh, the whole thing uh, ran for years. I mean, it, it broke um, in the Kazakh press because at that time there was a more robust um, independent or, if you like, opposition-linked uh, media. Um, and it was talked about at great length. Um, and, um, you know, it involved uh, an American middleman, James Giffen, and it involved the most senior um, people in the Kazakh state, um, uh, including Nezabayev, his prime minister, Balgambayev, and and eventually, um, eventually, it an agreement was reached between um, the American government, the Kazakh government, and the Swiss government, where the dirty money was stashed. Um, that that th- this money would um, the the agreement was the money would be given to to charity, and it was given to charity. A charity was specially set up in Kazakhstan, and by all accounts, this functioned. Um, the money was used to improve lives in rural Kazakhstan and so on. However, you know you. Um, it it does look a bit like a tacit admission that the money was not uh, that was a fudge if you like a fudge, um, so that was Kazakh Gate um, uh, many many years ago now. But the but the and the charity I believe has only recently in the last few years been wound up. And you know if people can read your book uh, and they can see other um, cases beyond um, uh, Aliyev. I mean you you, you detail other uh, stories and scandals and, and assassinations. Um, yeah, apparently he he um, committed suicide in a prison in Austria, right? Mm-hmm. So there's many cases where uh, these people commit suicides, but then again, it's like you never know exactly what happened. Um, about the coup attempts, uh, just a very brief, I mean, do you think there were genuine attempts to overthrow Nazarbayev mm-hmm. or that he, he, uh, he held uh, on power, that he had a strong hand for the 30 years that he was on power? Um, I think um, we've heard we've heard of a number of um, coup attempts. Um, I personally think that probably the one the one that Rakhataliev was accused of um, of of um, fermenting um, probably there was much truth in it. I mean, it, it's by all accounts, you know, the people who knew him and the way he behaved, he was a very power hungry person. So it's quite possible that he was trying to overthrow Nazarbayev and somehow seize power. I think that is possible, although how would we know for sure? 
Um, but th what's also very striking is that when things go wrong in Kazakhstan, um, it's always nowadays blamed on a coup attempt. Um, for example, um, what kind of things do I, I have in mind? Well, in 2011, um, in the town of Zhang Ozen, a protracted oil strike um, went very badly wrong and ended a spiralling into fatal unrest. And the security forces opened fire on protesters, on oil workers, on civilians. Um, and um, several people died. I mean, we, as far as we know, 50, at least 15 people were shot dead. And one was tortured um, to death in a, in a prison. Um, so, um, but that um, although the government acknowledged some shortcomings in what in the handling of the oil strike that led up to this, and in generally in the conditions in that town, which were very poor, um, ultimately the blame was laid on political opposition, and it was allegedly a coup attempt. Um, it was depicted as a coup attempt, and an opposition leader, Vladimir Kozlov, went to jail over it. Um, it was blamed on the, the regime's arch enemy number one, Muhtar Ablyazov, um, ex uh, oligarch and um, who lives these days in France. Yeah, I had a, just about, about him because he's. Uh... <clears throat> That was my next question, mm -hmm. and you're right about him. And like, yeah, today he's like, um, you know, uh, if we have Batman, he's like the Joker, right? He's like mm -hmm. the the supervillain mm -hmm. in, in Kazakhstan. And you know, after reading your book and other things that I've read, I mean, my image of him is, I can't think that he got all these billions, so many billions, um, in a legitimate way. For, I mean, maybe so you can tell us uh, if it, otherwise. But I mean, I it seems like he stole uh, a, a lot and now he's preaching against you know the correct corrupt government so it's something like uh the pot calling the the kettle black mm -hmm. type of situation so like how could then you take him uh, seriously if, if he's like cut from the same cloth um mm -hmm. but you know what can you tell us about about him well um this is a very a very murky tale <laughs> clearly um um, a very murky tale that's become very personal between Nazarbayev and Ablyazov, clearly. Um, now, um, in terms of the corruption case, uh, or cases um, involving Ablyazov in various countries, um, Kazakhstan also, there were some in Russia and Ukraine. Um, and of course, this was um, when when um, Ablyazov fled Kazakhstan in, in 2009. This was then fought out for years in the London High Court. Um, now, um, no conclusion was ever reached. So although Ablyazov has been convicted of corruption in Kazakhstan, um, it's quite hard to argue that the courts are objective in Kazakhstan. I mean, I have to say, I, I, after sitting many trials over the years, I don't find the courts objective. Um, so... Just leaving that aside, I mean, in London, um, what happened? Well, um, the case was never concluded because Ablyazov ended up debarred from fighting the case against the bank that he once owned, BTA Bank, and chaired, um, because he fled the country. And why did he flee the country? Flee the country? He fled the UK. Um, well, he says that he left because there was a security threat, a threat against his life. But his 
departure coincided miraculously with a judge ordering him jailed for contempt of court. And the, the, the substance of the contempt of court was that he was concealing his assets and not giving a full disclosure as he was required to. Um, the case was, so the case was never fought out to the end because he was debarred. But in a, in a related case, I mean, uh, a judge did find in a related case um, that the only explanation for um, some of the um, alleged misdemeanors uh, was that the, 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 this money was being siphoned off into shadow, shadowy accounts and, and so on. And so, you know, it, it did imply that there was, that there was corruption involving um, BTA Bank and, 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 and Abliazo. That was the implication of that ruling. As I say, never convicted in the UK. Um, but of course, there's an, another side to this case. Abliazo says he's a political victim. Um, and, um, of course, uh, he has been involved in opposition politics. It's known. It's a fact. I mean, he his problems did start, <laughs> indeed, when he became involved in opposition politics in 2001. That's when his problems started. He went to jail in um, in a case that was, you know, deemed by um, international human rights organisations and even um, governments expressing concern, Western governments, over, you know, possible political motivations. He was then let out of jail and then, of course, he was still involved in opposition politics. Um, and so, you know, there is this, um, this mud is the water somewhat. Um, and we, we see sort of rulings in the UK suggesting that there has been corruption. But there is, there's also no denying that he, he has had involvement in opposition politics. And it's also very striking, um, you know, that the, the selective nature of the people that, that, um, that, that seem to fall foul and, and end up on, on, on on trial for corruption or whatever in Kazakhstan, it's often pointed out by commentators that it can be selective and that it does often seem to be another motivation. So all I can say, um, you know, on <laughs> the plus of cases, it's like a it's like a James Bond film. I mean, you know, him fleeing, him being tracked down to the south of France, eventually um, from the UK. I mean, um, because the 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 bank's um, private detectives followed his lawyer and so on. Um, it's like a James Bond film, and I think um, we haven't seen the end of it yet, of course. Um, we also, we should definitely, um, you know, we also have to point out that Abliazov spent um, quite a long time in, in detention in France fighting a very lengthy extradition battle against extradition to Russia or Ukraine. That eventually ended when, you know, the France's highest administrative court ruled that the case was political, that Kazakhstan had, you know, um, basically um, Russia and Ukraine had filed um, red notices or whatever, want, trying to get hold of Abiyazov at Kazakhstan's behest. And the, 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 Fran the French court ruled that the case was political. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I mean, well, we could continue talking uh, along these lines, but I, um, why don't we fast forward a bit? to a few weeks ago, um, mm -hmm. and the decision of, of Nazarbayev to step down. So it was not a, I guess you can say it was not a surprise, but it was, uh, it was a shock, right? As I was, you was coming, but you just kind of never expect that, uh, that it's going to come. Uh, it seems to have been planned, I guess, for a couple of, they say two years, two and a half years. Um, so what do you make of the decision now to step down? Well, it certainly, yeah, um, certainly came as a shock to many in Kazakhstan, including me. Um, um, 
you know, um, not least because um, although we've seen a lot of movements here, especially over the last couple of years, um, you know, sort of legal changes seeming, seemingly paving the way for Nazarbayev to possibly step down, it was always a question well, whether he would ever, ever do it, whether he would ever be able to kind of cede power or some of his power. Um, because if you've ruled a country, I think, for, for this long, for 30 years, it, it must be quite difficult. You, you know, uh, so there was that. Um, and also, in terms of the signs that this was being prepared, yeah, there were definitely signs, including um, changes to the law a couple of years ago, um, that again kind of established, made, gave him some powers and so on, changed the constitution to, um, to 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 change, to make parliament and government a little bit more powerful. Um, but we can also talk about um, in 2010 when he became leader of the nation officially Yelbasi his title and was given the power to intervene in policy making after his retirement that was the there was the most enormous speculation about him being prepared to step down and that was nearly 10 years ago that was nine years before so that's why it's still a shock even though we could see these um, these, these movements. Um, as for what's behind it very hard to say um, I, I, I guess, um, I mean, first of all, there are, there are rumours put around that he, he's ill and that's why he stepped down. But, I mean, looking at him, he looks perfectly robust um, physically, mentally. Um, uh, he seems perfectly on the ball. Um, so that's just a rumour. I don't, I don't, there's no evidence for it. Um, it it's a possible explanation. Um, but there's also, I think, um, primary motivation is Probably he wants to secure his own legacy in his own lifetime, make sure that mechanisms are in place, that there's a change of power that's not sudden, that's not going to threaten his own legacy. And of course, the, the security of his family members, I'm sure that's an element too. Um, but I really think it's a legacy move. Uh, you know, he, he wants to go down in history as Kazakhstan's founding father, which he, he will inevitably, um, and to make sure it's all positive um, for him. Um, but of course... Um, you know, the, it, it, nothing is guaranteed in a country like Kazakhstan, uh, in a, in a, in a country where power is so personalized. Nothing is guaranteed. I mean, he, he won't be there forever. He wields many powers now, intervening policy making if he wishes to, chairing the Security Council, controlling security forces, therefore. Um, but you know, that at some point, everyone's mortal. And so we don't know what will happen after that. And of course, the other thing, um, when he stepped down, he said he wanted there to be um, stability, um, and also, you know, certainty, continuity. But all we've seen since he stepped down is a massive speculation over whether uh, Kasim Jamat Takayev is the interim president, whether somebody else will come to power. Um, and of course, the elevation of Dariga Nazarbayeva, Nazarbayev's daughter, to the chair of the Senate, the second in line to the presidency, constitutionally speaking, has another round of speculation. Is she being groomed or not? So we've seen uh, weeks of speculation now. And of course, only um, this week, um, an election was called for June. And, I, and um, you know, we'll, we'll, we will see who Norvatan, the ruling party, nominates. And the person that they nominate will undoubtedly be the president of Kazakhstan in the absence of any legitimate opposition in Kazakhstan or legally functioning opposition. Um, you know, we see um, signs that... Um, that Kasim Jomat Takayev is, is traveling today, I think, to Agatow. And so he's definitely, we see signs that Takayev is being branded. And I think that's a, a bit of a clue. Yeah, I would agree with you. I was going to ask you that. And it's, the latest analysis seems to say that Takayev will be 
uh, nominated. I found it funny in your book. You predicted the name change uh, from Astana. Uh, I just finished, I read your book uh, last night, and yeah, just a few weeks ago they declared the uh, Astana to be renamed Nur Sultan. Mm -hmm. I mean, what are your thoughts there? Well, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I guess uh, yeah, I guess um, at some point it was always somehow going to come that that city was going to somehow bear Nazarbayev's name. I mean, we've heard other pr other proposals like Nurastana. Um, my thoughts are that it was very high-handed, and that's not only my thoughts because we saw on social media and we saw even on the streets of um, the city now called Nusultan and Almaty, we saw people protesting about that. A few, small numbers for sure, um, but I think there were and there was a lot of um, anger on social media. I saw and also jokes as well, um, and I think people were quite frustrated with the high-handed nature of the decision. They were not consulted, they were not asked at all, um, and the the, the naming you know a, 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 the capital after a, a, a living politician I think for some people found that distasteful there's no denying others may be supported but we heard that what we heard most vocally was people's frustrations about the decision and the way it was enacted um, and of course we also saw people complaining first of all um, that a lot of money has been spent branding Astana in the world and that's true um, and now it's going to be known by a different name and we also saw people complaining that it was uh, you know we made a mockery of Kazakhstan on the international stage Borat comparisons unfortunately I, I think personally I would have preferred Nazarbayev city you know because mm -hmm. well I'm, uh, I'm Mexican as well so Mexico City you know has a nice ring to a Nazarbayev city mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's Nazarbayev's legacy and, and that will continue to be um, debated and examined as, as life moves on. But, I mean, there are a lot of positive things. You mentioned the nuclear test side, the development uh, of Kazakhstan. There are the dark shadows. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one thing you talk about in your book, uh, the Oral Mandar, I think mm -hmm. you can. Mm -hmm. So this kind of return uh, to call for, for patriotism, I, get, I would say like a healthy patriotism, right? Mm -hmm. And a healthy nationalism, not mm -hmm. some ex extreme ultra-nationalism, but to, uh, as a call for Kazakhs abroad to come back to Kazakhstan, as well as the renewal here of Kazakhs. Uh, and, as you said, the Russian ethnic population has been declining. Mm -hmm. the, so the, Kazakh, the percentage of the Kazakh population has been rising. There's the issue with the, with the language, so them learning uh, the language, but you know, I think it's good for a nation to regain its sovereignty, mm -hmm. uh, a national uh, identity. And so, what can you say uh, about this uh, call for Kazakhs abroad to come mm -hmm. from from China and from other countries, uh, and this renewal of this nationalism? Yeah, I mean that that this is an interesting phenomenon. Um, um, so yeah, as you say, the the Woromanda, the Woroman is um, loosely means returnee. Although of course most of the people who are supposedly returning to Kazakhstan, many of them or most of them, have never been there. <laughs> um, uh, they were born in other countries. Um, um, when Nazarbayev announced that program immediately after independence, you know, it, it, it was a very interesting um, and and in many ways positive um, sort of. Uh, initiative and and also creative, if you like. Um, now the official reason um, cited by Nazarbayev was sort of um, 
helping Kazakhs or doing the right thing by Kazakhs who were sort of blown abroad by the winds of history, including famine, revolution, war, all kinds of, of, of factors that made Kazakhs um, have to flee. Um, so that was the official reason. Of course, there was another reason, really. I mean, the, the demographics of it. Kazakhstan, Kazakhs were in a minority in their own country or the country named after them let's say um, because the country also belongs to the other people who live here um, as another Bible always makes clear um, but um, you know there was also I think that was a, that was a source of worry um, uh, especially when you, you have a neighbor like Russia um, which was weak in, in the 90s of course but um, has since become very as assertive not to mention aggressive with neighbors that um, that don't tow its line Ukraine um, annexing its land and, and also fermenting separatist um, trouble in parts of its um, other parts of the country. Um, so I think, you know, the, the Nazarbayev wanted to make sure that the Kazakh population was boosted, at least a, a partly as a national security issue. Um, as I say, it was creative and positive um, um, initiative. Um, it hasn't always been impl in, implemented um smoothly let's say uh the government um has given various perks to people over the years um sometimes financial and, and various other ones uh but it, there has been an integration problem that i think people didn't always expect um mostly it's the case that when the warlords who come from post-Soviet countries tend to have lived in a, in a similar environment, you know, because in many ways all post-Soviet countries have some common threats. Um, but it's uh, Waromans who come from other countries have sometimes struggled to integrate uh, countries like China or Mongolia, um, where they, um, they've often had a surprise, a shock, when they come and they don't speak Russian and they haven't realised that Kazakhstan was in, you know, parts of Kazakhstan or in some places it is Russian speaking. And that also it's quite hard to get a job in Kazakhstan if you don't speak uh, Russian, especially a decent job. Um, so there have been many integration problems. Um, those have been acknowledged sometimes by the government. Um, uh, I, I think it was just a, a, a surprise. And, um, and, and also the fact is that these people, a million people, around a million people have come in, in the years since independence. That's a big chunk of Kazakhstan's population of 18 million. Um, and also, I'm, um, it's also striking. I was um, just thinking the other day that um, these people, um, they're Kazakhs and they've been welcomed to Kazakhstan uh, by the government and so on. Although, you know, there has sometimes been hostility among local, local populations. But it's actually striking that these people uh, would never be allowed to stand for president because there's a rule that you have to be born in Kazakhstan. That's interesting. A million people and they're kind of ruled out of their, their own presidency. Um, and it's interesting that they don't have much political voice, even though they have some, some problems, common problems. Um, so... Um, you know, I think there have been integration problems, but they, the 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 have brought. They've also been praised in some quarters for being the kind of guardians of Kazakh culture and and bring making Kazakhstan more Kazakh speaking too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, we, we've talked a lot about the the Russian um, history and the influence, and it, uh, I'd also like to get your thought on on China um, as well as you know we had the Great Game. It was in the nineteenth century. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there is a new great game and you have the, you know, the Russian Eurasian project, the Eurasian Union. Well, which was the idea, they say, of Nazarbayev mm -hmm. in 1994, I think. Mm -hmm. But the Russians have been really pushing it along. And then you have the Chinese New Silk Road, the Belt and Road project. Uh, and so you have those, you have the Russian 
you know, Russia and the Eurasian Union and the influence and their power and, and economy. And then you have China with the new Silk Road. Um, and, you know, for the past century, we've had the British American project, which, you know, from my perspective, is that they've been kind of actively applying the Halford McKinder's Heartland theory, trying to uh, get into Eurasia and prevent Eurasia from uniting, which is kind of what we're witnessing now with Russia and China. And, you know, the U.S. had they've had um, their military incursions, you know, Afghanistan and other places. Um, the economic influence they, they've had perhaps sanctions and, and other ways of influencing the economy, the dollar, um, uh, and color revolutions um, that they've used as a weapon in, in my perspective. Um, but so we've got, you know, Russia, China, the U.S., and it seems for me that Kazakhstan has always tried to get along with all of the three powers and to kind of remain... To get the best of both all three worlds, mm-hmm. and to kind of stay stay neutral and not really step on anyone's toes, and so how do you see going forward this dynamic with Kazakhstan in the middle, uh, and, and then Russia and China uh, and the U.S. and I think all three have something they can give to Kazakhstan to, to benefit, uh, but then there's that danger of one or or two getting like too much. So I mean, what do you think going forward uh, the the dynamic might look like? Um, that's a good question, especially when we've got a, a change of president um, coming or <laughs> here. Um, I think um, you know this. I think this is also uh, one of the positives of Nazarbayev's legacy. Um, I mean, some people criticize it as fence sitting. Um, the policy they call multi-vector, as you mentioned, getting along with everybody. Personally, I think it's we could do with more countries in the world that try to get along with everybody and not create problems. Um, so I think that is a positive of his legacy. I do think it will be continued. Um, I mean, it, it's been specifically stated, actually, that, you know, foreign policy will remain the same, uh, or, you know, there's supposed to be continuity. Um, we know if Tokayev does become the next president, he's a very um, astute and well-connected and skillful diplomat. That's his, he's a career diplomat, his position. Um, he's also worked in, at, the, at the UN, in Geneva as Deputy Secretary General. So I think we can, we will, certainly won't see any sharp moves um, from a, a person like Takayev if, if it is to be him. Um, I, do, I think um, the Russia, um, I mean, Russia and China, um, and to a lesser extent, certainly the US are, are, are the main, you know, I guess, pause of influence or whatever you like to call it. Um, and I, I think that's not going to go anywhere. I, I think, as you say, Kazakhstan likes to kind of take what it can from all the relationships, quite understandably. Um, with China, I think um, Kazakhstan really wants to leverage the, the Belt and Road and to, 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 to try and use that to help the economy. And that's... Um, also a laudable aim. I, don't, I, don't, I think uh, we hear a lot about how China's only in the Belt and Road for itself and how it's tying countries into debt. But I think, you know, I mean, the, certainly the government thinks Kazakhstan's benefiting from, from, from many projects, um, including especially in terms of infrastructure connectivity. Um, Kazakhstan wants to be a big bridge in, in Eurasia and, that, and that, that is is benefiting. And the investment is not going into oil and gas. That's important for Kazakhstan. Um, so it's an important relationship. Um, Russia, as we've discussed, is really the major influence on Kazakhstan and also has a lot more political demands, I think, on Kazakhstan than China does. Um, I mean, China really um, uh, wants, you know, I mean, it, it, it does try to restrict publicly its political 
influence or leverage. However, we're seeing that changing now because of the camps in Xinjiang, um, which are housing, of course, many, many Uyghurs, but also Kazakhs and other minorities, including Kyrgyz. Um, so we're also seeing a bit more, I, I, I see China becoming a bit more demanding, especially because we know that a lot of what is being revealed about the camps is coming out of Kazakhstan, um, because this is where people, some people um, who've been in them or have relatives in them are here and they can't talk. And there's been a lot of international media since they can't really report on those camps from Xinjiang uh, have been coming here. Um, now, we've also seen the arrest of the activist, um, the, the key activist who was raising awareness and dealing with the international media on this, Selig Jan Bilash, recently, um, in, in the last month. Um, now, there's been a lot of talk about whether that was done under pressure from China. We don't know. Uh, we know he's the, that he's being accused of, of um, incitement, basically, of calling for jihad. Although I have listened to the video myself, and he did specify it was to be non-violent. Um, so I think what we're seeing is China becoming more demanding. Uh, recently, um, a senior Chinese official thanked Kazakhstan for its support on the issue of the camps. Now, that seems to be stretching it. I mean, Kazakhstan has never expressed support publicly on the issue of the camps. On the contrary, it's a difficult situation for Kazakhstan to deal with. So I think this relationship is changing in the light of, of these camps, and, uh, um, and it's going to be interesting to watch that going forward. Kazakhstan's in a very difficult position. Um, a big, powerful neighbour doesn't want to criticise publicly, but it's got public opinion at home, very concerned about Kazakhs in the camps and repression. Um, as I say, Russia always going to be powerful and always going to be politically demanding as well. Um, you know, it, it basically wants Kazakhstan to toe the line. It sees it as part of um, its zone of influence, traditional, and it also, uh, you know, it's also concerned when, when, for example, countries step out of its zone of influence, as we saw with Ukraine. Um, the US, um, it, it's, I, I think there is a perception in Central Asia now, um, nowadays that the US was very active here when they needed something from Central Asia in terms of um, military bases in, in Kyrgyzstan, for example, and security cooperation. And these days it seems to be playing less of a role. Um, and I think there's an element of truth in that. So I think, and also I think there's also, um, so in, in sort of leading Western democracies, we're seeing so many problems that people, it's becoming, the idea almost of, of is becoming a bit discredited. And of course, with Russia stoking the flames of that um, for propaganda purposes. Is there anything um, I failed to ask or something um, I left out that you do want to tell us about Kazakhstan, something important that's on your mind? Any final thoughts? Well, my final thoughts are that um, <laughs> it's a very, very, very interesting time for Kazakhstan. Um, we're seeing, uh, obviously, a change of leadership after 30 years, and yet Nazarbayev still overseeing, controlling things. Um, it's going to be an interesting few years ahead. Um, I, I think it's important to, um, and in fact, we were just talking about United States, for example, Western democracies. Um, I think... Um, it would be important for them to um, to try and um, impress upon Kazakhstan the dangers of um, suppressing dissent so uh, radically, if you like. I mean, I think, um, you know, I, we, we've seen too many trials um, of people for expressing their political views on Facebook, on social media. We've seen people go to jail. I think that's a sad direction for Kazakhstan to take. I think Kazakhstan should be more confident 
um, about um, its own people. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, I think it, it, it would be nice to see a bit more tolerance of, of different kinds of views. I mean, I, unfortunately, I, I, I doubt we're going to see that at a time of political transition when the, the authorities feel very sensitive. Um, but, you know, I, I think it would be nice if the authorities also were to listen more to their own people and take account of their views and listen to them instead of telling them all the time what they should think. Yeah, I would say the most annoying thing that I've experienced here, I've lived in six countries and it's the first time I have experienced the, the, the internet censorship. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's, it's really annoying because random sites that you need are blocked. Um, you know, you need to use often social media for, for business and entrepreneurship, which, which, which I try and you, you get stuck. It's, it's really frustrating. And, and I would agree that they can, you know, still maintain the sufficient order that they need, but they just need to, you know, it's, you can lighten up guys, you know, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and um, I guess my final thought or question was, um, you know, I've been, I've been here for a while. I enjoy Kazakhstan. Um, a lot of the stuff you'll find on the internet, you know, isn't true. You know, when you type in Semei, you get these nuclear, nasty mm -hmm. nuclear photos and this is just not the case. And you just have to come here. Uh, and see for yourself. And so I'm just wondering, you've been here, I think, 15 years. What has, what do you like about Kazakhstan and, and you know, what's kept you here so long? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I lived before that in Russia and in, and in Uzbekistan, five years in Russia, four in Uzbekistan. So uh, certainly I never expected to be here this long when I moved to Kazakhstan. It was 2005, actually, so 14 years this year. Um, I think, you know, I, it's probably going to sound like a cliche, but what I really like is the people. <laughs> um, I mean, I, of course, like the people in Russia too, in Uzbekistan too. Um, but, you know, I find people here very open um, and very willing to talk. Also, kind of a lot of fun and, 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 and easy to get along with. Um, and so I like the people very much. Um, I also like my work and I think it's important. Um, I mean, um, there have been many, many, right now there's a lot of interest in Kazakhstan, but I've reported on Kazakhstan over years when it was very hard to raise any kind of interest. Um, so I think it's important to kind of shine a light on what's going on um, and, and, you know, positives and negatives. Um, and um, so I guess, yeah, I guess that's it. And of course, a very, very, very beautiful country in, in many parts of it really big uh, and it takes a long time to see uh, all of the, the the things that there are to see the long train rides uh, but again they're developing they just finished the the airport here and so no there are new airlines being opened uh, and new routes uh, um, will be able to fly to Moscow from Semei here so again it's all developing the infrastructure so go out and get the dark shadows the book, the physical copy, or the, the Kindle. It's easier for me to just click a button and have access to it sure. uh, and ha instead of having it uh, shipped uh, all the way out here. So thanks for the interview.